You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. I can't wait to have you guys listen to this episode with my friends Renee and Nee Darko. We are talking about powerful relationships and how you leverage the right people. Although they are a power couple, I think they have a lot to teach us about other types of relationships, including in business and life. Take a listen. I hope you enjoy. Hey, this is Nee Darko. This is Renee Darko, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. It was never a consideration that my wife wouldn't work. It was never a consideration that she wouldn't pursue her own career. So as I started medical school, I thought I was like just the rest of my peers until I started meeting their spouses. And I realized that many of them were in these careers. Maybe it was teacher, maybe it was engineer, even lawyer, sometimes even another doctor. But they had already decided that once their spouse had become a successful doctor, that they would back off and leave their career. And I really found this amazing because, like I said, it was never even a consideration for me. So when I started to practice as a physician, there was no question in my mind that occasionally I would have to sacrifice so my wife's career could move forward. And then sometimes she would have to sacrifice so my career could move forward. And then, of course, we had children and a slew of responsibilities meant that often we had to trade off or even juggle. It would never have occurred to me before that someone would consider that, that we were a power couple. Power couple is not something I had ever thought about. It was not a way in which I would define myself. Yet this ability to juggle our lives and careers and do it successfully requires a different way of thinking, a different thought process, possibly even thinking outside the box. And speaking of powerful relationships, want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com. That's W-A-L-L-E-T. H-A-C-K-S dot com and be sure to sign up for their free newsletter.
Darko is a trauma surgeon, podcaster behind Docs Outside the Box, and creator of several businesses. Nee, you're a pretty busy guy. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty busy. <laughs> but it's I wouldn't I wouldn't want it any other way. I'll leave it to you like that. So I'm pretty excited to be here. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, I'm totally excited to have you on the show. And Renee Volney Darko is an obstetrician, gynecologist, author of a children's book, How Good Old Dr. V Came to Be, and the creator of a platform for all things pre-medical, pre-med strategies. Renee, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me back, Doc. I'm looking forward to this. I'm actually excited. I've had both of you on the show separately, so it's really cool to have you here together. Yeah, we're excited to be here. And speaking of together, Nee, I feel like I can't even start this conversation until you tell me how you guys met. Like, what was the love story <laughs> of Nee and Renee? I don't think you're ready for this. I don't think your audience is ready for this because <laughs> you, you're about to hear two different versions of this story. <laughs> see, see, that's even you better. Sure you want to do this? <laughs> yeah, I'm, this is, I knew I wanted to go here first. <laughs> so it, it's funny. Like, I, we met. So we had a, a, there was an alumni of our medical school that we were going to be going to, who was really taking charge of trying to get more minorities to come to the, to the medical school. This is out in Kansas City, Missouri. And both me and Renee are from the Northeast. She's from New York. I'm from Jersey. So he put us in contact with each other, as well as put us in contact with other folks, you know, to talk and say, hey, look, let's talk. Maybe by the time, you know, we get to Kansas City in three or four months, you know, we've developed some type of relationship that we can stick together when, you know, the school year started. So I, the first person I called was Renee. We had some conversations, nothing too in-depth. And then when we met each other, it was, you know, more or less the same. Hey, how you doing? What's up? And then I think several months later, we turned into, quote unquote, like pseudo study partners where right before our test, we would quiz each other. We wouldn't necessarily like study together, but we would just quiz each other right before a test. And then I think she just was sweating me so hard because I was looking good. <laughs> I was looking good and I was doing well on my tests. So she was like, how can I get with this guy? Right. And, you know, the rest is history, you know. So, Renee, do you want to just add the part afterwards where? Yeah, I think we I think we need a rebuttal first here. Renee, go ahead. Squiggly so lines. <laughs> Cue the squiggly lines, okay? Because my version of the story, (laughs) my version of the story. Now, part of the reason that I was laughing when he said we were pseudo study partners because, you know, we didn't really study together. So me has this idea of study partners being like people who actually read the textbook to each other. And I keep telling him that's not what studying is. (laughs) So we were actually study partners in that he's correct. Before a test, we would quiz each other. And that's how we would study together, even though we studied separately. So that was correct. And One day, actually, it was spring break, and we were hanging out because most people were off, you know, in Costa Rica and all these other places, and we didn't end up going anywhere, and so we would just hang out and watch movies and stuff, and then he kissed me. Okay. (laughs) That's how that happened. He kissed me first. So I think he was actually sweating me, and um, he was like, how can I get with this fine young tenderoni, you know? So... (laughs) I'm glad we've sorted this all out here on the Earn and Invest podcast. Just, you know, tell your editor, you know, like the last five minutes. Just edit that out. We, just, we just get rid of it. 
but yeah, so we, we, we started to, we developed a relationship and we also were getting our MBAs at the same time. And I think we kind of started to learn a lot of things about medicine and learned a lot of things about each other and kind of would just have these conversations where, you know, even though we were dating, we weren't really serious, but we were dating, but we would kind of just dream together about how we would effectively have our own practices or what we would want to do in life. And I think that kind of just set the foundation Mm-hmm. for kind of just saying, okay, well, I know what your dreams are and your aspirations. Well, here's my dreams and aspirations. And then, you know, here's how we can work together. But then what well, we're talking several years later, you know, we finally got married because she did her residency in New Jersey. And then I did my residency in Atlanta. So that put a significant strain on our relationship, particularly for OB and for general surgery. And then, you know, we finally took the, the big step in 2013 and we haven't looked back since. So, Ni, you mentioned your dreams, and you were the son of immigrants, and I know from a young age, you had this idea that whatever you would do would be impactful. Talk a little bit about The Cosby Show. I get this feeling that that changed your ideas of what you would do for a living. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you got to remember, I grew up in Queens when I was younger. I grew up in Queens, not too far from Shea Stadium, you know, not too far from from New York sports. And, you know, the, the, the Mets were excellent at that time. The Giants were excellent at that time. The Knicks were starting to slowly become really good. Yet, lo and behold, like I just never really kind of attached myself to sports. You know, it was really what was on TV. And I would watch a lot of TV. And this is around the time of Trapper John and emergency reruns were running at this time. But the concept of Heathcliff Huxtable was something that really stood out to me. Just being an amazing father, great husband, living in Brooklyn, living in a brownstone, having his office below him. I don't know what it was about that. That's just something that just really, you know, just resonated with me. And I knew like, man, I want to have a life just like that. I want to take care of people, but I still want to be the family man. I want to be the funny guy and so forth. And that kind of set me on this, this path in my mind of, oh, okay, medicine is the way to go to get to a different situation or to get a different station in life. That's how you get the brownstone. That's how you get the, the thought of and that societal impact that you know, I, I was looking for. Multiply that by different TV shows and different experiences. And that's where we're here. But that, that concept of Heathcliff Huxtable was something, I have to make sure I clarify that, that Heathcliff Huxtable concept was very, the concept, yeah. right, was very um, impactful to me. Interestingly enough, as large a figure as Heathcliff Huxtable was in the show, he was matched, if not overtaken, often by his very professional, smart, and successful wife, Claire. Do you think that also played a role a little bit in your modeling of what you were looking for as an adult? No doubt. No doubt. You know, I was, you know, I, that she was my first crush when I was <laughs> at a certain age, right? Claire Huxtable. Everybody wanted a Claire Huxtable growing up. Um, but if you look at my family life, my mom and my dad, both of them were blue collar workers. They both worked. They never took time off. I believe my mom took some time off early on to, to raise the, raise me and my sisters. But by the time I was really aware of what was going on, my mother was at work. My dad was at work. They never took days off. So being in a household where two family or two parents were working hand in hand was something that was just very normal to me. And as a matter of fact, I remember talking to Renee. I was just like, you know, that's just, you know, you work and I work and that's how we make it work. And 
that's just kind of been my the, the normal for me. So yeah, absolutely. You know, Claire Huxtable and that that interaction was something that we all or that for me I definitely aspire to have. Renee, it sounds like for me, he took a very traditional path to medicine. He figured out early in life that's what he wanted to do, and then he pursued it. You've described your path as a little bit more non-traditional. Did you go straight into medicine after college? I didn't actually, although that was the that was the original plan, right? And that was the that was the plan until the plan changed. And I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. I mean, you can ask pretty much anyone from elementary school, you know, what does Renee want to be? They would tell you she wants to be a doctor and specifically a pediatrician is what I wanted to be. But after, you know, I got into college, things took a little bit of a different path because college and me just, we just didn't mix very well. (laughs) And so I think I had some problems adjusting, kind of understanding the concept of good study habits and just really getting into my education as a way for me to get to a certain point and not just for the sake of good grades, if that makes any sense. And so my grades took a hit and I ended up doing a post back after college. But in between that time, between college and medical school, I also was teaching. I taught high school science and it was like physical science and biology. And so, you know, that was something that I had actually never expected to do. And it was a really good way for me, one, to kind of just enter the adult world, like the real adult world at that point, being responsible for children, being an adult who is supposed to be a role model and responsible for children. But the other thing was that it actually helped me to kind of solidify that I understood enough about science, if you will, to get into it to get into medicine, even though it was high school. But, you know, I felt so much more comfortable. I just had that much more confidence being able to go into medical school and say, you know what, I belong here. My guess is it also showed you that teaching was something that you enjoyed, which eventually would become part of your medical and eventually extracurricular career that you pursued. So it's interesting that you learned that kind of early before you started medicine. Oh, absolutely. I actually, my first, my very, very, very first job was when I was 10 years old. I was a tutor. Yeah, I was a tutor and I actually had taken on several tutoring jobs before I ever, I think I tutored four times between the ages of, well, actually probably five because I was a TA as well at one point. But I've had like about five tutoring teaching jobs between the age of 10 and 25. And so I had never, it's funny enough, I never considered teaching as part of what I would do as a career. And so here I am now kind of ironically being a physician, which means educator. Um, Here I am, you know, with this, you know, other career, if you will, teaching pre-meds how to get into medical school. Nee, it sounds like Renee, before she entered medical school, realized this other talent for teaching that wasn't specifically medical care. You describe becoming a doctor and realizing in a sense that you were in a box. Tell me about some of the role models that you had that made you think that medicine, the practice of itself, was a little bit limiting. Mm. 
It's a good question. Well, that definitely was not what you saw on TV, right? Everybody, I mean, Heathcliff Huxtable had his own clinic. Doogie Hauser had his own thing going on. All of these doctors, just in my impression of watching TV, and at this point, you got to remember, I'm still very naive at this point. You know, they were in charge. They were autonomous. That wasn't what I saw when I became a resident, right? So right when I became an intern, I realized the hierarchy and I felt I knew how restrictive it was. But then also at the same time, I started to see how restrictive it was for my attendings during M&Ms and the decisions that they were making during M&Ms, particularly as I started to go up in the hierarchy of residency, right? I would remember attendings telling me, well, we're going to do this so that nobody says anything about it in M&M, right? And I'm like, well, what, what difference does it make? Who cares? Like, this is a decision that you're making. And then I would see M&Ms and I would see those questions come up and I'm like, oh, I see how it is. It didn't bother me until, you know, up until fellowship and even past fellowship that once I became an, a, a, an attending, I started to realize that the, the thought process of practicing to make sure that someone else is not going to critique on Monday morning quarterback became so like, I don't know how to explain it. It just was uh, all I thought about to some extent that it really started to choke the joy out of medicine. Throw on top of that, you know, the, the decisions that I've wanted to make in terms of antibiotics or what type of therapies would be judged by what's on the formulary or what the CEO decided what was important or not, what they were going to have. It was just all of these things that didn't correlate with how I thought about medicine when I was younger. It became really frustrating. What Nia is talking about is M&Ms, our morbidity and mortality rounds, where doctors talk about cases that went in the wrong direction and critique what was done. Ni, you mention structural problems with medicine and how that led to some discomfort for you in your role. Was it just the structure of medicine or did you find that the practice of medicine itself might be limiting or not allow you to pursue your full creativity? It wasn't until I actually saw what other people were doing that I realized, wow, like I'm really limiting myself. So the first one, Renee's probably going to smile, is when I did my first locums gig, I was at a hospital. I was getting paid through a large uh, locums company. And it just so happened at that same hospital, the trauma service was also being staffed by a locum tenants company that was run by trauma surgeons. They were very brash. They would, you know, try to you know brag about how well they take care of patients but one day they bragged to me about how much more they were making than me and they completely rocked everything actually that's the genesis of where i am now they literally were making if we both did the same time i would actually hand off my patients to them the next morning they would hand off their patients to me and i found out that for every 24 hours that we would work they were making almost fifteen hundred dollars more than me per day and you know, on backup, it was some multiple of that. And I remember going to Renee and I was like, I can't believe this is going on. And she's like, yeah, of course it is because they're running their own company and that's how they're able to, you know, maintain profits. And I started to do the math slowly and be like, wait, hold on a second. 1500 per day times all the 24 hour shifts that I'm doing times 10 years, 20 years, like, this is ridiculous. Like, I, I just, it just was, for me, I just knew that because my parents were blue collar. For me to take that next step forward, you know, or a couple of steps forward to be a physician was huge. But I found out that, wow, like, 
I'm really limiting myself if I don't really take things to the next level. I just basically become a paycheck to paycheck hourly wage person if I don't really jump on this, you know, being a businessman for myself and really controlling how much I get paid. It really was like, wow, like, do I just stay as an employee and not get what I really want to get paid? Or do I take things to the next level? And uh, Renee, I don't know if you remember that conversation we had and what we decided to do, you know, after that. Renee, did you foresee some of this? I mean, you did an MBA during medical school. You must have thought that the business side played more of a role than maybe you were willing to admit early on in your career. (laughs) You would have thought (laughs) that we would have seen that. But no, I think we were very inside the box at the time, right? You know, we decided to do MBAs. I actually decided to go into the MBA program first. And later on, me, me decided to join that, that uh, semester or summer later. But it was very much a thought of, well, I'm going to be a doctor. Therefore, I would like at some point to run my own practice. And an MBA would be very helpful to allow me to do that. And what the MBA actually opened up for me before I even graduated from medical school slash MBA school what it opened up for me was my eyes to health policy. And for a quick stint there, I was doing a lot of health policy related things after medical school while I was still in residency. And then even did, even did a fellowship under one of the U.S. Surgeon Generals in, or former U.S. Surgeon General at the time, but at Morehouse School of Medicine, I actually ended up doing a health policy fellowship. So that's what it actually opened up my eyes to was that policy and medicine and business are all related. And so what I then realized was I don't want to open my own practice, actually, because if I do, I'm, my hands are going to be tied. I mean, the whole point of doing the MBA was so that I could have some autonomy over my own practice, over my own business. And then I realized, wait a minute, you know, the government is going to creep their way into my practice. And that for me was a deal breaker. So yeah, so that's how we you know, that's how we initially saw the MBA, but it, it definitely wasn't um, something where we thought we would be entrepreneurial past your own practice. You know, I, and I think Renee, actually, because she did her residency and finished it before I did, she was able to do locums first. And she was aware of these discrepancies with numbers first. And she told me about it, but I really wasn't paying attention. I was in fellowship at that point. But it really hit home when I started talking to her about the math. And then that's when we decided, look, like, let's start to bet on ourselves and let's, you know, use our MBA knowledge to really, you know, transform our lives. Like, let's go from just becoming paid employees to something different. And that really was very uncomfortable for me. Um, I think it was kind of a little bit uncomfortable for Renee, but more uncomfortable for me because I just had to really depart from the old way of thinking about being a physician and really looking at it from a, this is how I want my life to be. It just so happens I'm a doctor, but this is really my life. Whereas I was always pursuing just to be a physician and that was it. Mm -hmm. That was a big change for me. 
Let's talk a little bit, Nee, about that bet that you guys had to make on yourself. So Renee is at this point where she gets into public policy. She starts seeing that the practice of medicine itself probably won't fulfill her needs. You do this locum tenens. You meet these trauma surgeons who are running their own business. You realize there's a better way to do it. I imagine that there's this huge hurdle standing in your way, and it is medical school debt. How did you make the jump to betting on yourself and being entrepreneurial when I imagine you guys had hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt staring you in the face? Why not just go and practice and make your, you know, $300,000 a year as physicians and get that debt down first? Easy. Very easy. We were making more as independent contractors than we were as employees. So when I finished fellowship, Renee convinced me to do locum tenens first because I had a hard time really finding a place that I wanted to sign my life away, so to speak, for three to five years, you know, when only going on these eight hour interviews. So I did locums. And if you, and people who don't know, when you work as an independent contractor, you're oftentimes working in an emergency setting or a semi-urgent setting where the hospital really needs you. So they pay you more than what an employed physician would be paid. So to go from being paid as an independent contractor, you're handling your own health insurance, your own retirement, you're paying yourself at a certain rate that is tax advantage for you. And then after those, that one and a half years of working locums, we both went and started working as employees. There was a significant drop in our income. Then there was also less say in when we can take vacations. Then there was also less say in when we can go home and see family and so forth. So there was just, we went from doing really well and being able to afford certain things and pay off our debt to, wow, like we really are not going to be making that much money. We got a budget actually. So I don't, I, Renee, you want to kind of take it from there as to mm-hmm. what happened next? Yeah. So I mean, as, as me mentioned, you know, we, we both again worked as locums before we were married, got married, became permanent employees and all the limitations really just, I mean, they just really, really hit home for us. And so once we realized that we needed to budget, right, because one of the limitations was $662,000 worth of student loan debt, we realized that we have to start making smart decisions about our money. And we needed to first track where our money was going. And once we tracked where our money was going, before we ever started budgeting, we tracked where our money was going, we thought, oh my gosh, if we work this hard and give up this much of our time to this hospital, why is our money not going to the things that we want it to go to? And so we ended up making a pact that we would no longer create any more debt, no matter what, we wouldn't create any more debt and that we would then budget and throw as much money to our student loans as possible. So we ended up actually living off my salary and throwing all of me's salary to the student loan debt. And that became really significant because, you know, a lot of people don't understand that not creating any more debt. That means like not purchasing any car, financing it. That means, you know, we were very open about this. We had issues with fertility. So that meant doing in vitro fertilization, which could be really expensive. That means we had to pay cash for that or find a way to not use credit cards. So not only did I stay employed during those years when we were paying off debt, I would also do, I would work for two weeks straight and then have two weeks off 
Those two weeks off, I would go and do locums. So there were times for several months where for two weeks at a time, I was away from her also. So it was really difficult trying to keep and make sure that we're not using credit cards for any other and for anything else. Everything had to be done with cash. Renee, in the beginning, when I started my intro, I talked about this concept of being a power couple. And as you guys are describing some of the things you go through, I almost feel like it's number one definition of a power couple. You guys were facing debt. You were facing infertility. You were facing financial issues. That usually causes marital discord. But what you're really describing here is that made you put your heads together and work more as a team. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the fact that the fact that we were facing so many challenges, I think really helped to fuel us to make sure that we we were building the life that we actually wanted to build, right? So rather than, you know, start fighting each other, which wouldn't have made any sense, right? Because that's not going to build a life. We decided, well, let's just put our heads together. We're two smart people and we can figure this out. And there's really no need to argue about, you know, this debt, that debt, this purchase, the other purchase, if we, if we just work together. And, you know, one of the things that I say when people ask, well, how did you both get on, on the same page? And I think that actually just comes down to trust. I trust my husband. Like if he says that he wants to achieve whatever goal for us, and that involves having some sort of financial sacrifice, then why wouldn't I trust that that's actually what he wants. And why wouldn't I say, yes, I'm going to be supportive of that because he's only, he's only asking for something good for, for both of us to do. So I think it, it just comes down to trust. If you trust that your spouse or your partner wants what is best for you as a couple, then it doesn't, it doesn't become very hard to become on the same page. In the first half of the show, Renee and Nee talked about their prospective career paths. After the break, we discuss how they balance their separate ventures. But first, want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com. That's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S.com. And be sure to sign up for their free newsletter. Nee, let's talk a little bit about balance. Fast forward years, you both have your own private businesses. You both have your own podcasts. You both have written your own books. You both are still practicing physicians in incredibly busy fields, right? This is, you know, trauma surgery and OBGYN are not for the faint of heart. And oh, by the way, you have two children. How do you guys figure out the balance between each other's careers? Like you can't be both going full force at the same time all the time, can you? 
Honestly, I don't think so. No. I mean, there's really no such thing as balance. We just make it work the way how we just make it work. And if I was to tell people like there's a, a, we have a calendar that we follow and it has the exact amount of days that I need to work versus equal amounts, how much that she works and it works out perfectly. I'd be lying to you. Like it just, it doesn't work that way. The key things it boils down to trust, right? Like for me, I know that, you know, I trust my wife And when she said that she wanted to shift a little bit more towards being at home, but still wanted to practice, then I knew for me, the biggest things that we really need to work on is making sure that we had complete debt out of the way. We had enough of an emergency savings fund so that if she wanted to take a significant amount of time off, she could without feeling the pressure to come back. But I also knew for me, I still enjoy what I'm doing. I want to continue to keep going. So I had to figure out a way to make it work. So we, we decided to, to make a pact that was really simple and straightforward. When you work or when I work, she doesn't work. When she works, I don't work. Simple as that. And it makes it a lot easier for her to pick the days when she wants to work. I make sure that I'm off. And then when I'm working, she's not off. And then it also helps to make sure that there's always someone home with the kids so that the kids aren't current, constantly at childcare, which also helps reduce child costs also. So we've decided just to make the family the most important thing. And then the spokes come out from there, like the professional aspirations that we want, some of the hobbies that we want to do, the prof- you know, all of these different things come from the family unit. Because I think if you ask us, if you want to look deeper and look at the uh, below the surface, within my family experience, that was the key. Like the family was the most important thing. Profession really didn't, was important, but it wasn't as important as making sure that my mom, dad, and my sisters all were good. And I'm sure Renee can say the same thing also. So that translated to us also. So if, if me and Renee are struggling internally and we're having issues, then I, I can't concentrate on my business. Well, I can't concentrate as much as I can at work or with my podcast. So we always try to make sure that home base is taken care of. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would definitely echo that, you know, our family unit is definitely the most important part of our lives. And in particular, I would, I would even argue that, you know, the relationship that we have, the two of us have is actually even more important than the family unit as a whole, because we're the foundation upon which our family is built. And so we definitely put each other first. And so then that way our children can get the benefit of both of their parents. And, you know, it it really does help us to structure just the way that we live and prioritize the things that are very important for us as a family. So, Renee, I love this metaphor of the spoke and the hub with you guys, your relationship being the inner core of that hub, and then your family coming around it and your ventures being those spokes. So you have things like Docs Outside the Box, the podcast, and that's one of those spokes. And pre-med strategies is another one of those spokes. Do you guys look at those ventures as belonging to one or the other of you? Or is it more that you now work jointly on all of them together? I see lots of laughing and smiling when I ask that question. (laughs) May I'll let you answer this question. No, no, you go first. (laughs) So (laughs) so so the 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 real answer is it's it's all one big venture for all of you know for both of us. Now, obviously our passions are 
very specific. So my passion is with pre-meds and his passion is more with just kind of teaching docs how to live more outside the box. However, we, we see both of our businesses as kind of the family businesses. And so the reason that we were laughing is because, well, I don't know if people know this about my husband. He's very competitive and <laughs> he's very, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he likes to have ownership you know, of things, right? So, you know, we're laughing because we've had discussions back and forth with especially his podcast, his business, and just how it's, how it's managed. And so I definitely help with the podcast, but he runs that show. You know, he, he definitely runs the show, whatever he wants. That's the way that it goes. He's, he's shaking his head no, but the answer is. Aren't you the business manager? <laughs> I just manage the business that you tell me to manage. <laughs> so, Ni, nee, I'm going to put you on the hot spot here a little bit. I mentioned that if I was to look at power couples, right, rule one is that they grow from adversity. The way you guys did with debt and realizing and infertility and realizing that you had to do things differently if you wanted to succeed in your careers, I would say if there was a second definition that goes along with power couples is that they complement each other or learn from each other. Tell me some of the things you've learned when it comes to business from being married and working with Renee. Well, I think, I think that's a really good point. So with me and Renee, we've talked about this all the time, actually. We talk about, well, what's holding back, for example, my podcast business? For me, I always focus on, I got to make sure I have great content. I got to make sure that I'm, I have the schedule, the editorial content ready for three weeks, four weeks at a, ahead of advance. I have to make sure I have the right microphone, all these different things. She thinks about things. Okay, so where are you going to be a year from now? Where's the podcast going to be? Like, do you want to be doing podcasts in five years? She asks these type of tough questions that I just don't take the time out to ask. So she's more of a, a mastermind with things. Whereas I'm more of like the everyday daily grind, bring my lunch box, you know, to work and make sure that I continue to make really good content. Whereas she's looking 50, 30,000 foot feet in the air, which is really amazing. And, you know, I really appreciate that standpoint. And as much as I try to take that view, that's just not my strong point. And I think to anybody who's listening and anybody who's in a relationship, whatever it may be, if you find that your, 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 your significant other is better than you at one thing, rather than fight them about it and say, okay, well, it's got to go this way and that's the way. Like There are times when I just sit there and I listen to what she says, and it's a tough pill to, buy, you know, to, to, to swallow sometimes when you're like, wow, this is something that I created as a passion project and I know that it's growing. But then when you hear someone say, well, look, you're limiting yourself at X, Y, Z, and why don't we do this, this? You're like, wait, no, I want to do it. And you're like, wait, let me stop. Listen to what she has to say because she actually is right. And it's really paid dividends. So for me, the biggest thing is just learning. I think that's the reason why I'm so smart is because I decided to listen to her. Right. That's why I'm the smartest one because I decided to listen to her and take her advice. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> right. So, but no, that's, that's how it compliments. She, she thinks long-term, I think really short-term. Renee, what is Nee better at than you? He's more consistent than I am. That I will definitely say like, that is one thing that I admire about Nee is that he's 
very, very, very consistent. When he says he's going to do something, he is very regimented in the way that he does things. And he mentioned me being, you know, the 30,000 foot view in the air. Part of that is that I see so many things that it's sometimes hard for me to stick to one thing and to be consistent with that thing because I see so many ways that I can go. And so I think that's the ultimate compliment that we have with each other is that he has the grind, you know, the consistent grind, and then I have the vision, if you will. And so I think those two together really has, has really helped us. I don't know if I'd call us a power couple, but I'll take it. And, and that actually, if we take that story backwards, even to paying off debt, that's the same way in which we decided to tackle debt. I just thought that we were going to keep debt around for, you know, 20, 30 years until we discovered podcasts and discovered Stacking Benjamins and all these different podcasts and realizing that people were paying off debt in five years. And I was letting Renee know about this. And then all of a sudden I came home from work and she said, look, I figured out a plan that we can pay off our debt in five years. And I said, there's absolutely no way that we can do this. We're going to have to work and we're going to have to pay off our debt when we get into our 60s. Mm-hmm. Until she showed me the Excel spreadsheet and she said, look, if we do X, Y, and Z with our money, we can pay this off. And for me, like I said, it's about, I'm the consistent one. I'll work, but she has the, the, the view. And once she got me on board, I said, okay, no doubt, we're going to do this. So we kept at it and we were able to not only beat five years, we did it right under three years to pay off $662,000 of debt. So it, it just, we work really well together. And, you know, it's just all about recognizing the strengths and not really competing against each other, mm-hmm. but just really embracing what each person can do. And then together we can accomplish nothing, uh, everything, excuse me. Nia. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of enough. I have to admit, I'm a little bit obsessed with Hamilton because I just saw it on Disney. I had never seen it live. And there's this point where Aaron Burr is singing about Hamilton and he says, why do you write like you're running out of time? And then there's this other part where they describe Hamilton as never satisfied And when I look at both of you, actually, I see how much you've accomplished and are accomplishing. And I wonder, how do you decide what is enough? How do you decide when it's time to do less? It's a good question. I just, you know, I, I, you know, when, when we started, when we realized that we were, we got married and we realized that we were broke, that was one of the hardest pills for me to swallow, you know, and we both are physicians we both bring in six figure salaries and we we are negative six figures multiple six figures for me it was a big issue because you know my parents came from a different country they worked really hard you know we talk about that that first immigrant tax that you got to pay and to me there's supposed to be that big jump in lifestyle right and my parents were obviously living paycheck to paycheck and then now I'm a physician and me and my wife are living paycheck to paycheck that was a problem So when we started listening to different podcasts and blogs and finding out that people 10 years younger than us, five years younger than us, people in their 20s were like kind of enjoying this life that we just had no clue about. It really opened my world that, wow, like we really shut ourselves off from like this amazing thing that we could be doing. Imagine if we did X, imagine if we did Y, imagine if we embraced Z. Once I started to really understand that, you know, I started to realize just kind of what Gary V says, like, I don't want to be in my eighties 
in a nursing home or some type of personal care home having regret. And once, you know, I embraced that, I was like, all right, we've got to really maximize. I've got to really maximize all that I can do because once I detached my personality and my happiness from being a physician, it really became, okay, how can I really have a societal impact? Cause this is ultimately what I really always wanted was I just wanted to have an impact. And it just so happened that I found out that, Oh, I could be a doctor. And then that became my one focus. But once I detached from that and said, I want to be a great father, I want to be a, a great husband, I want to be, I want to have a great podcast and let other doctors know that, hey, it's okay to say that, hey, you love what you do, but you also want to do something outside the hospital. You know, that's when it really became like enough is not enough. Renee, Nee just did a really funny thing. He said, we have to maximize then he corrected himself and said, I have to maximize. <laughs> I'm just wondering, you know, I always get this in, this feeling that you're a little bit more zen about these things, that maybe you don't feel that constant push that Nee does. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely... So the, the difference between me and Nee is that I'm much more of a risk taker, I think, than Nee is. I think he would agree with that. I'm definitely more chillax about things. I definitely believe that hard work obviously is is necessary, but that things will things will happen the way they're supposed to happen if you put in the work. But yeah, I mean he he did correct himself. <laughs> <laughs> I I did realize that as well. But there, there is a, there is a we in there and, you know, the we again, is just us kind of realizing that his, even though he's the grind that I'm not necessarily in the way of his grind. Right. So I could be the wife that says, you know, oh, you're at work all the time. You know, why are you always at work? And that would, that would definitely impact whether or not he would be able to grind as hard as he does. Right. Same thing with me. You know, if he said, well, why do you want to be home with the kids most of the time? And, you know, you should just go to work every day like me, then that would, that would definitely affect the way that I do things. And so I think there is, there is a we in, in that we support each other in the way that we, we individually function. And I, I think that's kind of where, you know, maybe that's where the correction was, but, <laughs> but as far as your question as, as to when will enough be enough, it will never be enough. I think that that's kind of it for me. I, I am a person who likes options. I love options. I love to be able to see what the world is now and what the world will be and how I will be able to function in that world, how I will be more successful in the world 10 years from now than I am right now. So it will never be enough. I think the, the, the word enough obviously means that, you know, there, there's a certain satis, you know, satisfying component to whatever it is that you're doing. And that is, that is where it needs to stop. And for me, it's just, no, let, let's see how far we can push this thing. So Nia, I think there are probably a lot of aspiring power couples out there. And certainly it sounds like life can get pretty insane. What are, what is your advice? What are some of the tricks? And I'll take away the biggest one from you, unfortunately, and say that, yes, thinking outside the box is, is a, is a big trick. You obviously (laughs) have to look at things differently, but are there other tricks to make it reasonable 
to pursue your careers and lives as aggressively as you guys do? You know, I, I think the, the biggest thing right outside of my, you stole my thunder, obviously <laughs> was, you know, just making sure that whoever you're with, even if you're by yourself, the key thing is to remember that you always constantly have to push yourself by thinking bigger. If you're by yourself, that means finding virtual mentors, listening to podcasts, watching YouTube videos, reading books, looking and, and always surrounding yourself with positive information or positive people who are constantly pushing the envelope, right? So that you always feel like you need to do the same thing. If you're in a relationship, dreaming together with your spouse, with your partner, and just thinking about, okay, where we are right now should not be static. Like we have to always continue to get better and realizing that, you know what, like my dreams should not necessarily supersede your dreams because that's where you start to get resentment. If we can continue to dream together and work together. Yeah. Maybe it may require, like you said earlier, that I may have to pull back a little bit, you know, and that Renee's career has to continue to go forward and we cheer her on and then vice versa, as long as we know that this is mutual, then there's really no competition. It's really like you, when you succeed, you know, we all succeed and we do well. So I think that for us, it's just always been like, wow, like since we first met each other, I think we were both, we just really fit well together. We wanted the best for each other and it's always just kind of continued. And then, like you said, it just kind of gets welded together by the adversity that we have. And you're like, wow, like if we can make it through this, think about what else we can do. So we're not perfect at it, right? Like it's, and that's the thing. People think, oh, well, like, you know, you take your kids to school and then you go to work and then you go to locums and then you do this podcast. It looks, it's perfectly in this, this schedule. No, not, there's arguments between us. There's times where things get overscheduled. Like, how did you schedule this? I have to cancel it, you know, like, but ultimately it's never personal. It's just, okay, well, we'll just make it work and, and go from there. Renee, other advice to aspiring power couples, other tricks? I think, again, it just goes back to trust each other. Trust that you both want what is the best for for each other and, and for you together. And that definitely that definitely can be challenging at times because what you both think is best isn't always congruent, right? And so if you figured out that you are two smart people and you were smart enough to pick each other, then that means that you both have to sit down and figure out the plan together. And so you have to be able to trust that there is no ulterior motive beyond, I want what is best for us as a unit. And so that, that's, that's where I would, I would say, you know, power couples actually succeed. So here, here's a good example. Like we've decided to go into real estate as an investment property, as an investment vehicle. So we're looking for that right now. But I know for me, like doing all the numbers, you know, doing the research, that's not really my passion right now. Renee is extremely passionate about that right now. So for me, I know, okay, look, she wants to take that on. She knows how to look at all the listings. She knows how to run all the numbers. We've taken courses and so forth. That's just not where I'm at right now. I'm at the point where I'm like, well, if I work, Maybe I can continue to provide the down payments that we need to get the homes that we that Renee looks up, does the research on, and then we decide together we're going to move forward on that. So we're both kind of just relying on our own strengths and just saying, okay, together as a team, we combine and form Voltron, you know, and 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 make this work. But it's really important to recognize and feed each other's strengths 
and just let each other be that person. She's very an analytics numbers based. And you can, I mean, we just had a conversation earlier today about a, a, an offer we're putting in. She's talking. I'm just like, okay, all right, let's get to the point. (laughs) You got this. I trust you that you did the numbers. right. So should we move? Yes or no. And then she says, yes. And I trust her. We move, you know? So Renee, what does life look like in 10 years for the Darkos? In 10 years. So needs smiling right now because he, he has this way that of antagonizing me by telling me how old the kids will be in 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) So that way I I can know that they're not going to be babies anymore, (laughs) but 10 lot, 10 years from now, I would say we are, we are maybe living in a different country, maybe at least part-time. We are practicing medicine much, much more on our own terms, probably in a way that is more mission-based than, you know, not even so much locums, just literally medical missions. And that our, our respective businesses are sustaining us. And we're teaching our children how to have ownership, how to be owners and not just consumers. And we're actively teaching them how to make money work for them. And, you know, I I think that's what that looks like for us. Nee, any big bucket list items you're looking to check off in the next 10 years? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Can I put the Tesla on? (laughs) You you certainly can. No, no, she won't let me. She won't let me. (laughs) <laughs> but no, we we definitely, for me, I want to go back to do a family trip in Australia, New Zealand, and Bali. We did that for our honeymoon. We did it for a month. And we would love to take our kids and do it again before we get too old. So that's the big thing for us. Or at least for me, that's the big thing I want to take off. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really excited that you guys came onto the show today. You are a perfect example of what happens when two people form a united vision and tackle life together, what I would call a true power couple. Renee, for the audience, if they want to know more about you or your businesses, where can they find you on the internet? They can find me at Dr. Renee Darko. That's D-R-R-E-N-E-E-D-A-R-K-O. That's all over the internet, all over social media. And then you can do drrenedarko.com if you want to visit my website. And Nee, if people want to learn more or contact you, what's the best way to reach you? Sure. So on social media, my handles are Dr. Nee. That's N-I-I Darko, D-A-R-K-O. And then if you want to know about the podcast, if you want to know about what programs I'm doing, just go to drneedarko.com. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Nee and Renee Darko. That's a wrap. You guys have heard me talk about this idea of front-loading the sacrifice, that you have to work hard and long and make a lot of money when you're young so that compounding can build your financial future. 
This is the idea of getting to financial independence as soon as possible. But starting a year ago, I started to hear about the slow fi or slow financial independence movement. It is another take on how we not only build wealth, but also build the kind of life we want to live. Take a listen. So I am so excited to be back with Jessica from the Pioneers, and we are going to talk about slow financial independence. She has a Facebook group called the Slow Fi Community, as well as has been writing about this for a long time. Jessica, welcome to the show. I want to jump into this idea of YOLO, you only live once, because I thought that financial independence and YOLO were fairly incompatible, but maybe not so much. Yeah, thanks for having me back on the show. Really excited to be here. In terms of financial independence and YOLO, I also thought they were incompatible. When I first heard about financial independence, right, my husband was much more of the saver, wanting to pursue FI. And I was like, I only live once, so I want to take the trip and go to the restaurant and do the things, right? And I think over time, my perspective has shifted to see like as we've gained more financial freedom that gaining financial freedom is actually the thing that enables you to live your best life right and so for me there was this moment of realizing that i could stay in a toxic job right or right you know re- realizing that like i could stay in a toxic job or i would be able to like quit that job, take a leave of absence if I needed to, all of that. And that was really, I think, the moment for me where I realized financial freedom actually is the thing that helps us improve our lives. It's funny because a lot of people, when they first come across FIRE, financial independence, retire early, it doesn't sound so pleasant. And in fact, I think it's a big turnoff when you first learn about that. You felt that too, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing. I think that the big stories that are picked up in the media are always really extreme cases. So it's like the people who are like $15,000 a year or people who refuse to drive their car and bike everywhere or, you know, people who are like going to stay in a toxic job that they don't enjoy for five years just so they can live off $20,000 a year after that, right? Like those are the kinds of stories that we hear in the media because they're, you know, they're sensational stories, right? And so I thought that like, that's what FI was or FIRE was. And so when I first heard about it, I was already in a toxic job. I couldn't imagine staying in that job for another month, let alone another 10 years, right? To reach that point. And so I felt like it wasn't for me. And then it wasn't until I started to hear stories and meet other people in the financial independence community who weren't living lives in such an extreme way. I actually think most people who are pursuing financial independence are not living in such an extreme way. We just don't hear about their stories in the, in the news, right? Or in like the mass media or they're not the, the people who are like put at the forefront of the movement. And so when I started hearing and seeing those more realistic stories of people who are focusing on improving their lives all along the way by doing things like taking mini retirements or working part-time or, you know, taking a semi-retired approach where they work for a portion of the year and travel for the rest, right? Like seeing those kind of stories got me like thinking like, yeah, this could be for me. 
because I wasn't willing to sort of sacrifice my current, like my current time for future happiness. I needed both. So again, going back to YOLO, you only live once. You weren't willing to sacrifice today, which is often what that kind of traditional fire, almost fad diet sounding pattern is, is you have to give up everything for some time way out in the future that may or may not come. Your answer tended to be what you call slow fire. You're the first person I've heard use that term or the first person I really saw bring that concept out. What is the slow fire concept and how does it solve this YOLO versus fad diet living? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the the concept of slow fire is that, yes, you're pursuing financial independence, right? But at the same time, you're intentionally using the financial freedom that you gain along the way to design your life now, right? And to improve it now, right? And so slow fi isn't like specifically a number or a specific approach to fi, right? It's much more of a mindset, this belief that like the journey should be as remarkable as the destination, right? And so that you know, could mean different things for different people. So like slow fi means you're finding your own unique path that's going to make you happy and energized and fulfilled. So that could be finding a better job, something you enjoy more, right? That could be working part-time or seasonally. It could be taking a sabbatical or mini retirement. Um, It could be becoming an entrepreneur or a a freelancer to have a much more flexible work life, Um, Or, you know, it could be negotiating a remote or really flexible work arrangement at work so that you can travel nomadically, right? There's so many like different options. There isn't one blueprint to slow fi, right? It's that people are figuring out what is the unique thing that is going to add value to my life and then figuring out how to pursue that along the way, not just after they reach fi. And as you developed your ideas about slow fi and wrote about them on your blog, The Fineers, are you finding that people find that more palatable than what was out there before? I've definitely heard from a number of people that that this is like the kind of financial independence that they can resonate with. And I would say that like there are certain people that like their path and thing that they want like they uniquely want is to retire early and that's okay, right? Like that's not a bad thing to do if that is the path that is the thing that is your path and it will uniquely make you happy, right? Um, What I don't want people to do is sort of blindly follow that traditional fire narrative, right? And, And say like, oh, well, that's better than the other traditional narrative, which is work 40 years, save, and hopefully you can retire someday, right? It's, it's saying that's not enough to just flip it. It's saying let's figure out how to write your own life script of what's going to be uniquely fulfilling for you. So in a sense, you're almost taking the goal away from a number and really transitioning it more into your current lifestyle and mm-hmm. That seems to be the difference Mm -hmm. compared to what people were doing before, which is they were creating this number, $1 million or $2 million, and that became Mm -hmm. the end-all, be-all goal. For you, that's less important than creating those kind of everyday goals of living the way you want to. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say that's the priority. And at the same time, we are focused on making sure that we will be, you know, set and and secure financially in the future, right? And but I think that it, those things go hand in hand because I would not have been able to take six months off of work to recover from a health problem. I would not have been able to decide to work part-time, right? I would not have been able to, like at at this point, I'm considering maybe within the next year, I quit my full-time work and do full-time, not full-time hours, but full-time entrepreneurship. And those are choices that I would not be able to make to, you know, sort of align with my ideal lifestyle, if I had not been working toward financial independence, like financial independence has enabled me to make those decisions. The other really cool thing about this idea of slow financial independence is we know that slow meaning taking many and many years can also take advantage of compounding, right? So as Mm -hmm. you are taking this slow path to financial independence, as you are living a little bit for today, as well as living for the future, your investments can keep on compounding and growing in the background. Tell me what this term coast fi means and how that came to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So coast fi is when you've saved enough in your like investments or retirement accounts that if you don't add another dollar and you leave it untouched until the traditional retirement age that you want, that it'll grow to provide you with a traditional, a comfortable traditional retirement. Um, right. And so that's right. There's ba- a basic compounding formula that, that you can use for that. Um, and the great thing about it is when you get to a point where you realize like, okay, my, my, Um, traditional retirement is set, right? There's a few choices you can make, right? Like one of them is you can continue to save. And that basically means you're no longer saving for retirement. You're saving for early retirement, right? The second thing that you can do is you could say, I'm going to scale back and only cover my cost of living, right? And so you could say, I'm going to work part-time or I'm going to become an entrepreneur and I'm just going to like cover my actual costs and leave my um, investments to grow to provide me with that comfortable traditional retirement. Or you can use it as like, you know, somewhere in the middle, right? And so you could use it as a way to say like, wow, this gives me a feeling of freedom that enables me to scale back even if I'm not ready to scale back completely to only cover my cost of living, right? So for us, realizing that we were Coast Fi made it really easy for me to decide to scale back to working part-time and cutting my income in half, you know, because we still were going to be saving quite a bit and we, we knew that we actually didn't need to save anymore, Um, Right. And so that was, I think, an important feeling of freedom to be able to make the shift, even though we haven't sort of shifted to that full coast by lifestyle. What I love about using this idea of coast fi is we always talk about the dangers of yolo spending your money too quickly because you only live once but there's another danger out there called the once i have syndrome which means that you put your life on hold until you have a certain amount of money once i have a million dollars i'll take some time off once i have five hundred thousand dollars i'll travel more Uh, that can be just as dangerous as what we traditionally call YOLO. And it sounds like Coast Fi is a real 
healthy way of dealing with that so that you're not always stuck on the future. You're letting your money do what it needs to do on its own, but then can, can enjoy some things today. Yeah. One interesting thing. So I think of this statement that, that someone shared with me. I think it's like a Marine statement. That's like slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Um, and you know, someone brought that up recently. So we were just sort of redoing our financial independence plan. So we created one, you know, two years ago and we just started our journey. It was before I decided to work part-time, right? All of those things. And our baseline number uh, two years ago was that we would be able to like reach financial independence in 11 years, right? And then we were like, okay, we'll speed that up by increasing our income, decreasing our spending, whatever. And we actually just looked at those numbers again. I cut my income by 50%. um, Like soon after, like about two months after we created that plan, we realized that our financial independence timeline now, two years later, is actually down to seven years, which is crazy, Crazy. right? But part of it was because... Like I would, we were, I was no longer miserable. Like I was no longer completely burned out, um, you know, and we weren't doing the same level of emotional spending that we were doing. Right. And so we were able to save like a, over a thousand dollars a month on things like convenience, travel, you know, all of those, you know, eating out, takeout, like that kind of thing without hardly even noticing it. So that was part of it was, was we were able to cut our expenses significantly without hardly realizing it just because our lives were better. Um, and then another part of it obviously was the market. Um, and then another part of it was the fact that working part-time has given me time to work on so many passion projects that you know I didn't plan originally to generate any income, but now they are, right? And so there's there's this really neat thing of saying like my passion projects are like, I'm only going to do things that I would do after I've reached financial independence. Like that's my bar of like, here's the kinds of things I'm going to do in my free time for my passion projects. And so then if I can generate income doing those things, I can transition to my like ideal Phi life way before reaching Phi. Um, so that's what my, that's what my goal is now at this point. And that's how, you know, slow fire and coast fire like manifesting um, in my life. And you mentioned before the market had gone up. So your net worth had gone up. So it had cut mm-hmm. your timeline. But we are also in the midst of a pandemic and a recession. The market can go up and down. How mm-hmm. do you think what's currently going on in our economy is going to affect the slow my, the slow fi movement or will it at all affect it? Good question. I think that it's actually likely to make more people interested in SloFi. I think the reason being is that when there is like financial instability, like in, in the economy, um, I think it makes people less confident of things like retiring early and never earning another dollar, right? So I think of it, you know, and I actually, at toward the beginning of the pandemic, I reached out to people Um, a few folks who were sort of living in a slow-fi way to see like how they felt like the the pursuit of slow-fi was sort of impacting their journey. Um, And they were talking about like, 
I'm so happy that this is the approach that I'm taking. It enables me to have more resilience. Um, And I think part of the reason why is that it's much easier to generate income when you already have income, right? Like you can more easily scale it up or scale it down rather than being like, I haven't worked in five years and everything tanked and now I need to find a job that it's like, if you're, if you're working, like it's, it's easier to scale up income if needed um, than to, you know, completely find something new. And then I also think about the market as well in, in terms of coast five, right. Is, is that like, I'm not, because I'm not planning to retire early, right? And I'm not planning to access the money that's in the market for a long time because I'm expecting that I will be able to generate income through passion projects that within the next couple of years will cover my full costs of living. I'm not gonna need to pull anything from the market. So I'm gonna be able to just let it continue to grow and let it bounce back before I would need to pull anything out. Yeah. It kind of empirically makes sense when you're talking about a slow fi lifestyle. The likelihood is over long periods of time, abnormalities tend to smooth, right? There's this reversion mm-hmm. to the mean. So if you are quickly trying to get to financial independence, having a big dip in the market could really throw off your five year mm-hmm. plan. But when your plan is a 20 year plan, mm-hmm. most right. likely, all of those upswings and downswings mm-hmm. are going to even themselves out. So it actually mm-hmm. seems like a much smoother ride if you're looking into your future than someone who's trying to just mm-hmm. get there as quick as possible. Yeah, exactly. And, and one thing to add on the five plan. So that the like reaching five in seven years, so cutting off those two years, um, you know, in addition to like the two years we've lived, um, you know, is not actually the plan that we're going to take, right? Like that's if we kept everything the same as it is now. But because we're pursuing slow fi and understand coast fi and like all of these mindset shifts, we're able to start thinking about saying like, what would we want to do? And could we make those shifts sooner? Right. And we actually mapped out a scenario of like me quitting my job within the next year. Right. And getting to a place where if we needed to, we could only save like, you know, 20% of our income or something like that. And even if we did that, we would still reach five by the time we were like 46 years old, which it's like, so why wouldn't we slow down? Like that seemed like, why wouldn't we try to build our ideal lifestyle within the next two years instead of waiting seven So Jessica, not only have you developed the SlowFi philosophy, but you've also built a community around you. Talk us through the Facebook group, the SlowFi Enthusiast. It's been growing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so the whole original idea of SlowFi actually started when I was like, people are not sharing the stories of people who are like, actually doing these things along the way to FI and actually like designing their lives in ways that make their life better. And so after I had done a few of those interviews on the blog, it seemed to be that there was a lot of buzz around it. Um, And so we decided to create a Facebook group for people who were interested in this concept. Um, And it's been growing pretty significantly. I think we're at maybe like 1.8 thousand members um, in this group right now. 
Um, and it's really cool to see and hear the stories of people who are living their lives in a slow fi sort of way. Like, for example, even yesterday, I was interacting with someone on the group who is a nurse in California and after reaching Coast Fi a few years ago, decided to work two weeks on, six weeks off and slow travel around like Europe with her family. And now they live in Europe and she just travels back to the United States to work two weeks out of every two months, right? And so it's like people are doing such interesting things. Um, And I always think that like, you can't do something that you, like, you can, sure, you can do something you haven't seen before, but it's unlikely that we're going to be able to do things that that we haven't seen before. Like, seeing what other people are doing helps us to believe that, like, real people are doing unconventional things, and, like, this life could be possible for me, too. Um, and so that's, I think, part of the purpose of the Slow Fi Enthusiast Facebook group is to just expose people to different types of lifestyle design options. So the movement is the Slow Fi, Slow Financial Independence Movement, certainly what appears to be a more palatable way of going after FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early. Jessica, you can find her at Fioneers.com or the Slow Fi Enthusiast Facebook group. Thanks for being on the show. I can't wait to hear more. Thanks for having us. That was so much fun. Yeah, you're an excellent interviewer. I just got to ask you all like the questions I've been dying to ask you for a while. So. I'm like, I'm going to grill him now. I'm going to grill him. Yeah, you're good at interviewing. That was really good. Yeah, I love, I have to tell you, I love interviewing people. I just, I, I, to me, that's the thing I think I want to do with the rest of my life. Nice, nice. You should I'd have your own talk that. show. <laughs> well, you have to do already. <laughs> You guys are great together. I love the interaction. Um, very smooth and easy to have you both on together. Like, Oh, thank you. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.